all through medical school and residency and even up until a few years ago. I mean, I just had this deep-seated empathy that I couldn't understand for our patients with SLE. Now, I feel bad for all of our patients with autoimmune conditions. I mean, they can sign up for that. Uh, Well, I mean, who does sign up for some kind of disease, right? But specifically for SLE, I felt something for them because they had gone to so many doctors before. They had all these vague, you know, constitutional symptoms until they all align together. Then somebody's light bulb goes out and goes, oh, I think it's SLE and starts a diagnostic path. And and I just felt for them. I mean, remember, SLE patients are predominantly female. And because I deal mainly with obstetrics, then I thought, man, you know, I just, these women didn't sign up for this. Now, thankfully, we've learned a lot about SLE, specifically SLE in pregnancy. And our management is night and day different from when I was in medical school. And that's a good thing because we've made lots of advances. I mean, I remember using the international criteria for SLE. Do you remember that? You had to have four of 17 criteria, and at least one had to be a clinical issue, and then one had to be an immunological criteria or a biopsy test. Well, that's not even a thing anymore. Well, let me clarify. It is still a thing internationally. But in 2019, the American College of Rheumatology redefined the classification and diagnostic scheme for SLE. And we're going to talk about that. But what I really want to focus on on this podcast episode is what to do with anticoagulation. Because I always got that confused, right? Because I've had some patients tell me, oh, my doctor said I have SLE, so I'm going to need, uh, you know, Lovenox as anticoagulant when I get pregnant. And then my answer is always, well, okay, I get that. Oh, do you have antiphospholipid antibodies? And they say, well, what's that? Well, wait a minute. Not everybody with SLE needs anticoagulation. So this is what I thought we would tackle here. When is Lovenox indicated? When is low-dose aspirin okay? So we're going to tackle this issue of SLE and specifically what to do when there's antiphospholipid antibodies with or without some kind of clinical history. All right, so that's the premise here. What to do with our SLE patients in general, and then what to do when they have or don't have antiphospholipid antibodies, and they either do or don't meet specific criteria for antiphospholipid antibody syndrome. Did I confuse everybody? Because that sounded kind of confusing to me. Don't worry, we're going to make it all clear in this episode. So let's get started now. Our goal is to keep everyone up to date in practicing evidence-based medicine because medicine moves real fast. This is Clinical Pearls. A quick disclosure. In this podcast, I'm going to say Lovenox as a substitute for low molecular weight heparin, all right? Knowing, of course, that Lovenox is not the only form of low molecular weight heparin, but it's the most common. It's the one most people are familiar with. So whenever you hear Lovenox, it's not just that that's Lovenox. It has to be that type. It's low molecular weight heparin, which is definitely preferred compared to unfractionated heparin, right? Just much easier to use. So Lovenox, not a sponsor. And it's not just about Lovenox. It's about low molecular weight heparin. Just a quick disclosure. Data for this podcast comes from the Society of Maternal Fetal Medicine Consult Series number 64, which can be found in the American Journal of Obstetrics and Gynecology from September of 2022. Data also comes from the American College of Rheumatology.
think I should clarify this whole empathy thing that I talked about a little while ago because I don't want that to sound weird. I mean, we should always have empathy for every kind of disease or pathological or just not ideal outcome that we deal with. I think that empathy, when we can walk in our patients' shoes, it just makes us better healthcare providers, just helps us know where they're coming from. But specifically for SLE, here's the background, okay? So first of all, I dated this girl all through high school, up until college and until the first part of medical school. It did not work out. And I'm thankful for that because I would never have met my now wife uh, and three kids later. I love where I'm at now. But I did have this this big part of my life was with this uh, young girl, this, this young woman uh, that we walked through life together in late adolescence into early adulthood. Well, after, of course, our relationship ended, I found out about, mm, I don't know, one or two years later that she was diagnosed with SLE. And I think because of that personal connection, uh, I mean, I just felt terrible for her. I, I want the best for her. I don't want her to have uh, any kind of difficulties in life. I know that's not realistic. Life is difficult. But I think that's where a lot of this empathy for SLE that, that I still feel uh, comes from. And, and I hope she's doing well. I mean, it's been... I don't know, 20 years that I've talked to her, but I hope she's doing well. But that's where this empathy for SLE comes in. So as a quick encouragement, I mean, really do. We should always empathize with our patients. Oh, I'm getting the I'm talking too much sign. I think we need to get back to the show because I think somehow I, this is becoming a Dr. Phil episode. All right. Nonetheless, let's get back to SLE. If your first thought is, I think I'm going to skip this episode. I mean, SLE, how often am I going to see that? Well, yes, it's not extremely common, but it is one of the more common autoimmune conditions. And remember, since it's several times more prevalent in females than males, and this podcast audience is women's healthcare providers, trust me, you're going to run into this. I have, I know of two SLE OB patients that we have in our database right now. So also, because this affects predominantly younger reproductive age women, pregnancy is not unusual here. In the U.S., there's about 3,300 deliveries per year in women with SLE. That's 3,300 deliveries. And you're like, man, that's it? No, no, no. But you got to know how to manage them. Plus, even if you don't have one, it's a great board question. Or somebody may side consult you. And now you can have the information about when to give them anticoagulation or who just needs aspirin alone. Specifically regarding pregnancy, remember this. Most things in autoimmune states get a little bit better because of the immunomodulation in pregnancy, right? But pregnancy is a potential risk for flares with SLE because increased risks of estrogen are associated with increased activity of SLE. So unlike most other autoimmune issues, pregnancy with especially unstable SLE is fuel to the fire. So it does not get better in pregnancy. Pregnancy can make SLE worse. Specifically, SLE patients have a higher risk of preeclampsia, preterm labor. They, of course, have a risk of thrombosis that's intimately tied to the antiphospholipid antibodies that we're going to discuss here in a minute. All right, podcast family, remember this because this is a scary clinical pearl. And this is why we're talking about this because this number is frightening to me. All right. When you talk about maternal mortality rates in pregnant women with SLE, it's 20 fold higher in women who have SLE and are pregnant. That's 20 to 0 compared to those who don't have SLE. That's why we're doing this episode. 
Now, you all know this isn't just a maternal issue. I mean, there's some potential neonatal complications as well. There's cutaneous manifestations, there's heart block, but I don't want to get into that right now because I want to focus on the antiphospholipid antibodies. But just remember, of course, because we said congenital heart block, that's usually attributed to two maternal antibodies that SLE patients can have. Remember, that's anti-Rho and anti-Lar, SSA and SSB antibodies. But again, that's a different issue. Maybe we'll do a separate podcast later, but I want to focus on antiphospholipid antibodies and the syndrome here. SLE is so broad and there's so many different aspects to it that one patient's SLE may not be the other patient's. Remember, it's a syndrome. The diagnosis requires the presence of some characteristic clinical features and some confirmatory lab studies. We're going to get into the lab criteria as well as the clinical diagnostic issues that have changed here in just a minute. Remember, we talked about the four of 17 criteria where one had to be clinical and then you had to have at least one supporting a lab study, but that's kind of changed now since 2019 and we're going to give you that in a minute. But this is a big issue. Remember, of course, that major organ systems can be affected. That includes the kidneys, the brain, the lungs, the heart, skin, and joints. And the most common symptoms of SLE are fatigue, fever, arthralgias, myalgias, weight loss, and rash. So remember those. When somebody comes in, oh, I'm so tired, I just have this weird fatigue. How often do we get that? A lot. Well, don't forget just to check that TSH and ask about nutrition, ask about depression, but ask about these other things that they have had in the past so you can connect the dots and make the diagnosis earlier. If you suspect your patient has SLE, you got to first figure out which criteria you're going to use to diagnose or, or work in unison with your rheumatologist so that you're on the same page, all right? Because traditionally, remember, it was the Systemic Lupus International Collaborative Criteria that we already talked about. You have to have four of 17 with a high ANA. But in 2019, the American College of Rheumatology hooked up with a European League Against Rheumatism. That's the Euler Society. That's E-U-L-A-R. But just remember, it's American College of Radiology as well. In 2019, they redefined this criteria. So I want to get into this next. By the way, whenever you hear American College of Rheumatology, that's the ACR. I think that's super confusing. I think societies need their own initials because that's also the American College of Radiology. Man, you don't want to confuse those two, okay? ACR, American College of Rheumatology, or Radiology. Those are completely different people personalities, and I don't think radiologists want any business in diagnosing lupus, and I surely don't want rheumatologists being the only people reading their own films. Nonetheless, let's get to the 2019 American College of Rheumatology criteria for SLE. It all starts with that ANA level. We give ANA so much credit, but most of the patients get referred for ANAs that are really not at a critical level. In order to meet the first pass for SLE based on the 2019 criteria, the antinuclear antibody needs to be at or greater than 1 to 80. So remember that. If you ever asked what ANA is significant, it's greater than 1 to 80. Now, I'm not talking about double-stranded DNA. That's for disease activity. Just as a first screen, ANA levels greater than or equal to 1 to 80 is significant. That now enters additional criteria. So they have to have that ANA titer first. 
additional criteria include a variety of clinical manifestations, but now they are weighted. In other words, they're given a point scale. So if you have an ANA of greater than 1 to 80 and have one of these additional criteria of which have different points assigned, right? Like almost like an APGAR score. If you add up the points and they are at or greater than 10, then that's the diagnostic criteria from 2019 for lupus erythematosus. All right. So ANA of greater than 180 and an additional criteria, which is a variety of systemic and clinical factors, each one that's weighted differently. And if you add up the points and they're greater than 10, then you can make the diagnosis of systemic lupus erythematosus. All right, when we come back, let's talk about the difference between just having antiphospholipid antibodies and having the actual syndrome that goes along with that. Because there's a lot of confusion with that, and there really shouldn't be. Antiphospholipid antibody syndrome is a very well-defined, clear-cut condition. So let's make that distinction and talk about what to do with these pregnant patients next. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Okay, first, let's knock out the easy thing. Because patients with systemic lupus erythematosus have a higher risk of preeclampsia in all hypertensive disorders of pregnancy, then the basic recommendation, let's just knock out aspirin right now. Yes, if you have lupus, please start them on low-dose aspirin starting as early as 12 weeks and continue all throughout pregnancy. Now, I'm not talking about history of thrombosis or anything else. We're going to get to that next. But just remember, all patients with SLE, the easy checkbox is, oh, you have SLE, you're pregnant, congratulations, here's your aspirin. So start as early as 12 weeks, and that continues all throughout pregnancy. All patients who meet the criteria for SLE diagnosis should then have workup for the antiphospholipid antibodies. And remember that there's three here. There's the lupus anticoagulant, there's the anticardiolipin antibody, and then the last one is the anti-beta-2 glycoprotein 1 antibodies. So those are the three. But remember, of course, that having the antibody doesn't mean that you have the syndrome. To define antiphospholipid syndrome, you have to have at least one clinical criteria and one laboratory criteria. The clinical criteria is either a history of vascular thrombosis, which could be either one arterial or it could be venous or a small vessel thrombi. So the first clinical criteria is a history of vascular thrombosis. And then the next criteria has to do with pregnancy morbidity, and there's three types there. The first is greater than or equal to just one fetal death that happens greater than the 10th week. 
the next OB morbidity criteria is if there's one premature birth or more before 34 weeks because of eclampsia or severe preeclampsia or placental insufficiency marked as uh, fetal growth restriction. And the third pregnancy morbidity type is having three or more consecutive pre-embryonic losses. In other words, that's before the 10th week of gestation, okay? So recurrent ABs before 10 weeks, one fetal death beyond 10 weeks, and then the need for early delivery before 34 weeks due to eclampsia, severe preeclampsia, or placental insufficiency, and that can include fetal growth restriction. For the lab criteria, remember that this isn't just on one spot check. They have to be repeated and confirmed 12 weeks apart. That's three months apart, all right? So if the lab criteria includes either lupus anticoagulant activity, remember that's got to be on at least two occasions separated 12 weeks apart, and one clinical criteria, then that meets antiphospholipid syndrome issues. The other laboratory criteria is anti-cardiolipin antibody. That's either IgM or IgG, and that's in medium or high titers, and that's defined as greater than the number 40, or it's above the 99th percentile. The last laboratory criteria that makes the diagnosis is having anti-beta-2 glycoprotein 1, again, either IgM or IgG, in medium or high titers, on, again, two occasions, at least 12 weeks apart. So having one lab check that has anti-carlapin antibody, that's significant, but it doesn't make the diagnosis. Each one of those lab criteria has to be confirmed at least on two occasions, at least 12 weeks apart. Okay, as we get ready to wrap this up, let's get into our recommendations. If you have a patient who has systemic lupus erythematosus, period, no matter whether you're going to add prophylactic or therapeutic Lovenox, remember to start them on low-dose aspirin. That's a carte blanche. That's everybody gets that starting at 12 weeks all the way until the uh, delivery because of their increased risk of preeclampsia. So low-dose aspirin, check. For patients who have documented antiphospholipid antibodies and who have poor obstetric history, all right, and that includes either recurrent pregnancy loss or a history of stillbirth, because remember, it's either three recurrent pregnancy losses under 10 weeks or just one fetal death over 10 weeks. So a stillbirth qualifies for an SLE evaluation. It's not just in the first trimester. So for patients who have antiphospholipid antibodies and a history of loss, either a stillbirth birth, uh, fetal loss greater than 10 weeks, or recurrent pregnancy loss, then the American College of OBGYN recommends prophylactic heparin throughout pregnancy and up to six weeks postpartum. Now remember, this is all in the background of low-dose aspirin. So for a patient with antiphospholipid antibodies and stillbirth or recurrent pregnancy loss, then start them on prophylactic heparin all throughout pregnancy and up to six weeks postpartum. People always forget about the postpartum part, but it should continue up until the postpartum interval. And again, all of this is in the background of low-dose aspirin. For patients who have antiphospholipid antibodies and who have a prior thrombotic event, so their clinical criteria is that vascular thrombosis, well, that's pretty clear, right? They require therapeutic anticoagulation all throughout pregnancy, and don't forget about that postpartum interval because that should continue therapeutic anticoagulation up until six weeks postpartum as well. So here's what we've covered. Remember, if they have a history of loss, either as a stillbirth or recurrent pregnancy loss, then the recommendation is prophylactic low molecular weight heparin on top of that background or basal use of low-dose aspirin. 
If the patient has a history of vascular thrombosis that helps meet that clinical criteria for antiphospholipid syndrome, then that's pretty easy, right? Any prior clot requires therapeutic anticoagulation during pregnancy on top of that basal use, that tonic use of low-dose aspirin. And remember that that also continues until six weeks postpartum. If the patient's APS, that's antiphospholipid syndrome criteria, was met because of preterm delivery, remember that's 34 weeks or below, because of preeclampsia or eclampsia or placental insufficiency, which includes fetal growth restriction in this context, then that low-dose aspirin comes in because it's prophylaxis against the development of preeclampsia. Now, a quick clarification here. Remember that ACOG and SMFM do not endorse low-dose aspirin for the sole prevention of fetal growth restriction. Oh, you had a previous child that was less than 10 percentile, then here's your low-dose aspirin. That's not how it works. This is specifically in the context of SLE and antiphospholipid syndrome, where the fetal growth restriction or placental insufficiency was a result of preeclampsia. So it defaults to preeclampsia prophylaxis, and that's why that low-dose aspirin comes in. Just a quick clarification. And just to be completely legit and to give recognition to the college for that statement, that comes from the committee opinion from the college in July of 2018. And the direct quote is, low-dose aspirin prophylaxis is not recommended for prevention of fetal growth restriction in the absence of risk factors for preeclampsia, end quote. Of course, SLE with antiphospholipid antibodies is a risk factor for preeclampsia, so that's where the low-dose aspirin is allowed. All right, podcast family, that brings us to a wrap. I hope I've made this easier to understand and easier to remember. That's it. Just three interventions for antiphospholipid antibodies, whether they're present or not, and whether they have the syndrome or not. It's either aspirin by itself, aspirin plus prophylactic heparin, or aspirin plus therapeutic heparin. And don't forget that it continues up until six weeks postpartum. As always, we're thankful for you, and we're glad you're part of our podcast family. So we'll see you next time on another episode of Clinical Pearls.